It's a great pleasure to be with you again this morning. Just take this opportunity to thank the church for its kindness and hospitality to me over the last few days. I've greatly enjoyed my time here. I wonder if you would turn with me to the first book of Samuel. <clears throat> and I want to read the whole of chapter 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Now there was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim, of the mountains of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeraham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zoph, an Ephraimite. And he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. This man went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Also the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. And whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Peninnah his wife and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it was year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord that she provoked her. Therefore she wept and did not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? So Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord. And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. Then she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me, and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall come upon his head. And it happened as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli watched her mouth. Now Hannah spoke in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli thought she was drunk. So Eli said to her, How long will you be drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant a wicked woman, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief I have spoken until now. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition which you have asked of him. And she said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate. And her face was no longer sad. Then they rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord, and returned and came to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. So it came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived and bore a son and called his name Samuel, saying, Because I have asked for him from the Lord. Now the men of Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice in his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, not until the child is weaned, then I will take him, that he may appear before the Lord and remain there forever. So Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you, wait until you have weaned him, only let the Lord establish his word. Then the woman stayed and nursed her son until she had weaned him. Now when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, with three bulls, one ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and, was, and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered a bull and brought the child to Eli. 
And she said, Oh, my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood by you here, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition, which I asked of him. Therefore I also have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. So they worshipped the Lord there. Praise God for his holy word. Please be seated. And any children uh, can now head to the nursery, I believe. probably true to say that the Old Testament contains many of the stories with which Christians are most familiar. Uh, Certainly if you grew up in a Christian home, I'm guessing that the the staple of uh, family devotions was probably stories from the Gospels and stories from the Old Testament. There's something wonderful about the story sections of the Bible that grips the imagination. Remember when my boys were small, uh, we would uh, ask them, Sometimes what story they would like at family worship, and they always chose the same one. They always chose the story of Eglon in the book of Judges because it had everything that a young boy would want. It had a lavatory, it had an assassination, it had an absurdly fat individual involved. It was something that appealed, I think, to the cruelty of young boys. And ever since then, I'm guessing that's probably the story that most grips their imagination. We know of Samson, we know of Jephthah, we know of Moses. These are familiar names to those brought up in Christian homes. Yet I think it's probably true to say that as familiar as we are with the stories, quite often we're not sure what we should do with them. Self-evidently, they are written about a period of time, a place, a society that's very different to the one in which we live today. And so while we might enjoy them as great stories, the question of what we do with them as Christians today living in 21st century America is a more perplexing one. Familiarity does not necessarily mean that we are comfortable reading them as Christian stories, particularly with some of the events that occur in some of them. And what I want to do today is is look at the first chapter of 1 Samuel. I've been preaching through 1 Samuel at my own church now for about a year. I want to look at 1 Samuel chapter 1 and see what it says to us today. What are the lessons we can draw from 1 Samuel chapter 1 for 21st century Cheyenne? It occurs, of course, at a particular point in Israel's history. Uh, We have the book of Judges and then we have the book of Ruth that have brought the story of Israel from really from the death of Joshua and the initial conquest of the promised land all the way through to the moment we find in Samuel here. Israel is ruled by judges. There isn't a hereditary monarchy at this point. The Lord raises up individuals, particular individuals, uh, to lead the nation. We think of judges, of course, today as those who preside in a court of law to make sure that everything is done fairly and according to procedure. Judge in ancient Israel was effectively a military leader, the military governor of Israel. And the story of the judges has been an increasingly sad one. If you go back and read through the book of Judges, it really culminates in a very tragic and devastating scenario. Some people say the book of Judges is like a sine curve. It's periods of, of glory and then periods of apostasy. In actual fact, I think a more accurate reading of the book of Judges is that it's a slow and steady decline into apostasy culminating in the events of Judges 19 and following. We see at the end of Judges the, the apostasy of, a, of the priesthood. 
We see the apostasy of a tribe and then we see the terrible gang rape and murder of a young woman culminating, plunging the nation into civil war. And it's very clear that the situation for Israel is getting very bleak. They've wandered very far from God. If you compare Judges 19, for example, to Genesis 19, Genesis 19 talks about the incidents in Sodom and Gomorrah. About a third of the language in Genesis, in Judges 19, is taken straight from Genesis 19. And the writer's making a very clever point. By the time we get to the end of the book of Judges, Sodom and Gomorrah isn't something out there, something in here. The people of God are as corrupt, if not more corrupt, than those of the surrounding nations. And that sets up the national problem, which the book of Samuel will be about solving. In Ruth, the little book we get in between Judges and Samuel in the, in the canon, the name of David is mentioned, very last a verse of the book, the name of David is mentioned. And those of us who know our Old Testament know that things are starting to move. The problem in the book of Judges is to be resolved, but it's going to be some way, it's going to really get, take us through the whole of the first book of Samuel before we get to the definitive rise of David and the fall of the house of Israel's first king, Saul. So what I want to look at today in this uh, first chapter is this. I want to, to look at the national problem. I then want to look at the personal problem that this uh, chapter contains. And then look at the response to these that the chapter points towards. First of all, the national problem. I've outlined some of the history for you already. There's a little verse that occurs three or four times, I think three times actually, towards the end of the book of Judges, that is, speaks very eloquently of the nature of the nation at that time, and it's this. You'll find it in Judges 21 verse 25, for example. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That little refrain occurs, I think, three times in those last chapters of Judges. And it's an interestingly, not ambiguous, but it's a, it's a verse that carries more than one meaning. And I think the writer means us to see several meanings in this verse. On one level, it's simply saying very straightforwardly that this is the period in time when there was no king in Israel. So when you read that verse in, Gen in uh, Judges 21 we are chronologically located in the period before the kingdom. But there's also, I think, a more profound meaning involved, and that is that Israel has no king, and therefore, as the verse goes on, everyone does what is right in their own eyes. It's not just a chronological statement, I think it's also a moral statement as well. And the moral statement is this, there's nobody in control and everything is slowly flying out of control. And then I think there's a third meaning to this phrase, and that is theological. Of course Israel has a king. Israel has always had a king. The Lord is the king of Israel. In fact, if you read on in Samuel, when the people of Israel call for a king, the Lord specifically says to Samuel, they have not rejected you, they have rejected me as their king. It's a theological statement. Israel is in a state of deep apostasy because she has rejected the Lord as her king. It's an absurd rejection, of course, because the king is still her king. Be a little like me as a British citizen. I can deny the fact that the Queen of England is, is the Queen of England, but it doesn't change the fact that she is. I can live my life as if she isn't the Queen of England, but it doesn't change the fact that she is. It's the same with the people of Israel. They're engaging in an absurd apostasy here. The Lord is still the king in Israel. 
Judges, as I said, leads us through this uh, story of corruption. And we realize that when we get to the beginning of Samuel, uh, we're in a very, very similar situation here, that nothing really has changed. The priesthood is still corrupt. Eli, it's high. You know, Eli is a sort of likable character, I think, when we read about him in, 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 in uh, uh, First Samuel. There doesn't seem to be much malice attached to Eli as a person. But he's clearly very weak, for his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are very corrupt. We will learn in a later chapter that they take bribes. They take bribes. Not only do they take bribes, but they take bribes relative to sacrifices. So they're profane bribes that they take. And also that they are uh, forcing women to engage in illicit sexual relationships with them when they come to the sanctuary. They're effectively raping women as one of the perks of their job as priests. So it's a very, very bad situation. The house of Eli, the, the priesthood that is meant to represent God to the people and the people to God is very, very corrupt. Hophni and Phinehas are two extremely wicked individuals. And in some senses, they epitomize all that's wrong in Israel. They do say, you know, look to a nation's leadership if you want to see the overall quality of the people. That might be a rather bleak prospect. Uh, in 2016, given what's coming down the pike in, uh, in November this year, either way, I think. But there is something to be said for that, isn't there? That often a leadership of a people tells you something about the people who are being led. The people are tolerating a very, very corrupt priestly leadership at this point. And we'll hear a little bit later as well about the rise of a very aggressive foreign power, the Philistines. Foreign relations are problematic at this point. There are a number of nations that are beginning to threaten the Israelites. And one of the reasons they call for a king is they want a king to help lead them against these foreign nations. Nahash the Ammonite. The Ammonites are a dangerous foreign power. The Philistines are a dangerous foreign power. There is great pressure coming on the nation in terms of uh, what surrounds them. There are obvious analogies, therefore, I think, when we look at this passage. Well, this is a very different world to ours. I think there are actually obvious analogies to the world in which we live. We live in a world marked by nothing if it isn't worked by, marked by the questioning of authority. Uh, when I grew up, I was terrified. You know, if my teacher sent a letter home to my parents about my behavior, I'd be absolutely terrified because my parents would automatically have assumed that the teachers were correct. And I'd have been in for it. It's interesting today that the, uh, the assumption seems to be if a teacher moves against a child, they're as likely as not to get sued. For a year or two, I was on the, the local uh, kids' soccer board in the township I'm in. And uh, the, you know, the worst meeting of the year was always the, year, the meeting after the rosters had been announced. And it was always the same age. It was the 10-year-olds. The 10-year-olds' parents would come in and always complain that their kids were not being given the... They were not in the prestigious enough team for them. Even at trivial levels, authority is questioned. You go right to the top. We live in a world where authority is questioned every step of the way. Very similar to ancient Israel. Very similar to ancient Israel at this particular point in time. We live in an era of moral degeneracy. We live in an era where immorality is not just tolerated, but frequently promoted as a good thing. 
frequently promoted as a good thing, very like Israel at the end of the period of the judges. And we live in an era of considerable uncertainty and chaos. Just before I went to bed last night, I always click on the BBC on my cell phone just to see what the, the announcements are. And there'd been an explosion in New York. I believe it was confirmed later to have been a bomb. Um, it was not a gas explosion or something. You know, right at the heart of New York, a bomb goes off. People feel very vulnerable today. Very similar to 1 Samuel. We want a king because Nahash the Ammonite is threatening them. We panic and we look for easy solutions, don't we? In eras of uncertainty and chaos. So the first thing I want to say is there's a national problem here. And before we dismiss this as way back when, it actually bears some comparison with the problems we find in our own society today. But secondly, what makes this particular chapter very moving is the personal problem. The early chapters of Samuel really involve these two sort of stories. There's the national problem and the personal problem. And they will slowly but surely come together in the person of Samuel. The solution to the national problem and the solution to the personal problem will be one and the same. Samuel, for it will be Samuel who first brings Saul to the throne and then takes the kingdom away from Saul and gives it to David. The solution to the national and the personal problem is one and the same. Personal problem is this woman called Hannah, the woman who cannot have children. The fact that she's mentioned first when uh, uh, we're told about uh, Elkanah and his wives, verse 2, he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah and the name of the other Penina probably indicates that Hannah was the first wife. She was probably the one he married first. The text also, although the text is a little ambiguous, it's typically translated uh, later that he gives his wife a double portion, that Hannah receives a double portion, verse 5. There's some debate in the commentators about whether that's exactly what that verse says. But the overwhelming majority of Bible translators have chosen to go that way. And it certainly makes sense. Hannah appears to be the favorite wife, gets a double portion. But there's a problem. Hannah can't have children. It's probably why, it could well be why, he took a second wife. Because Hannah was not able to have children and secure his inheritance, etc., for Elkanah. Not being able to have children is clearly a deep personal and emotional issue for Hannah, as I think it has been for many women before and certainly since. But also involved, though, considerable social shame. Remember, this is very much a pre-modern society. And you know, I, it, it's rather sad, that this, this fact, I think, but generally speaking, in pre-modern societies, the value of women was judged by their ability to produce children. A woman who had children was, uh, was a productive person in society. And there was a, a significant degree of social shame in pre-modern societies attached to not being able to have children. So this poor woman is suffering not only emotionally, as is clear from the passage, but one can imagine she's suffering socially as well. Notice that it's from the Lord, though. This is the odd thing. Notice that it's the Lord who has closed her womb, verse 5. That's a hard passage to understand, but it's there in the text. I think we could not say to this woman, well, it's very sad you don't have children, but it's nothing to do with the Lord. Passage goes out of its way to make it clear that it's the Lord who's closed this woman's womb. 
We can only speculate about why the Lord would do that. Who knows? But one thing we can say is that there is a sense in which the barrenness of this individual woman represents in personal microcosm, in a small way, the problems afflicting the whole nation. Don't look this verse up now. You can go and check it later if you'd like. But Deuteronomy 7.14, I think, is very important for understanding what's happening to Hannah here. Deuteronomy 7.14 reads this, You shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall not be male or female barren among you or among your livestock. See, one of the great covenant blessings for the people of Israel would be there would be no barrenness in the land. There would be no barrenness in the land. This woman is barren. She is, if you like, indicative of the fact that the people are under a curse at this point. This is not what you would expect among the covenant people. It flies in the face of God's declared blessing. So there's a sense in which, as we describe the national problem, now we see a symptom of that national problem in the figure of this particular woman. And of course, her pain is exacerbated by the very unsympathetic attitude of the second wife, Penina. Rather than putting her arm around this poor woman and comforting her, Penina has seen the opportunity of her own fertility to mock and persecute. To mock and persecute Hannah and to drive her, we might say, to distraction, to break her heart. And we're told that she weeps and she doesn't eat. She's got an eating disorder, we would say today as a result of not being able to have children and the kind of grief that's being heaped on her, probably by society at large, certainly by the second wife. And Elkanah loves her dearly. But the bottom line is, it's not enough. The love of him as her husband is not enough to compensate for the social shame and the emotional pain she feels from not having children. And we might say that her suffering is an individual instantiation of the larger problem, not simply of living in the covenant people when they're in a state of apostasy relative to the Lord God, but also she represents an individual instantiation of the larger problem of living in a fallen world. We live in a fallen world. Another analogy here with 1 Samuel 1. The kind of pain we see displayed in this woman is familiar to all of us, surely if not in our own lives, then certainly among people that we know and in the world, every time we switch on the television set, what do we see? We see the curse that lies on this fallen world. The mocking, the persecution, the barrenness, the agony. It's there in 1 Samuel 1. And the reason, I think, when we read this passage that our hearts go out to this woman is we have some sense of what she's experiencing. So there's clearly a connection between the world in which we live and our experience and what's being described here. Her response is interesting. She goes to the temple at Shiloh. Shiloh is the place where the Ark of the Covenant is set up in Joshua 18, verse 1. It's the place where God dwells in covenant with his people. God is all over the world. Sure, God is everywhere. But God has said that he's going to be specially present with his people in this wooden box, the Ark of the Covenant. And there's a sense in which in ancient Israel, if you want to go and be close to God, then you need to go to the place where the ark is located. And at this point in time, it's in the temple in Shiloh. 
Later, of course, there'll be the great temple in Jerusalem into which the ark will be inserted. But at this point in time, it has a temporary residence, we might say, long-standing, but temporary residence at Shiloh. She goes to the place where she knows that she can pray to God as He is present with His people and as He has revealed Himself to be in terms of the fulfillment of His covenant towards His people. Notice the content of her prayer. Verse 11. She vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. She's echoing, echoing a statement in Scripture, I think there, Exodus 3, verse 7. It's happening in Exodus 3. The people of Israel are suffering in Egypt. Moses comes across this amazing burning bush in his desert wanderings while he's looking after the sheep. And the Lord speaks to him out of the bush and says this, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. Hannah, I think, goes to speak to God as he dwells in the ark and echoes, draws upon the character of God as she knows it, as revealed to Moses in the burning bush, that God is a God who looks upon the afflictions of his people, remembers and knows the afflictions of his people. Exodus 4.31, after Moses and Aaron report all the, the burning bush to the elders of Israel, We hear this, and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Just as an aside, notice uh, Eli's mistake here. She's praying in her head, we would say, but she's moving her lips. Eli thinks she's drunk. That's one of those, uh, when, when you're a historian, you're sort of trying to closely read historical texts. It's one of those little details that, that tells you more than it appears to tell you. That Eli assumes that this woman is drunk at the, uh, the, uh, at, the, at the temple would seem to indicate that it's more common that women are drunk there than they pray there. And it's another little tale of just how depraved the culture of Israel has become at this point. Hannah's prayer, I think, raises for us the question of how we pray. What is the appropriate way to pray? Prayer is to be based upon the character of God, rooted in his historical actions as recorded in his revelation. When we pray to God, what do we do? I think there's a sense in which we should recite back to God who he is and what he has done on behalf of his people. As a way of you know, so humanly speaking, reminding God of his promises. That's so often what happens, isn't it, in biblical prayer. The, you know, God has not forgotten his promises, but there's something powerful, isn't there, about those who pray, reminding God of his promises. Think of how many psalms there are where the psalmist effectively calls upon the Lord to honor his word. That's the biblical pattern of prayer, by and large. Calling on God to be now in the present who he has promised to be and has shown himself to be in his actions in the past. That's Hannah's prayer. And the divine response 
is interesting, isn't it? It comes through Eli. He may be head of a corrupt household. He may be uh, the, sort of the top priest at a time of unique depravity in Israel's history. But the Lord speaks to him and immediately look at what happens. Verse 18, And Hannah said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. The encounter with the Lord through Samuel, through uh, Eli, is transformative. We might say her eating disorder has gone away. We don't know. Maybe she wasn't sort of chronically eating disorder, but she just wasn't eating properly. She goes away. Suddenly her appetites come back. She's been in a state of depression and her appetite has not been what it should be. The Lord has spoken to her and she goes away and she, she eats. And her face is no longer sad. People passing her in the street would have noticed a difference at that point. So dramatic is what has happened. Well, what's she done? Very simple. She's cast her cares upon the Lord, hasn't she? She's not even pregnant yet. We're told that occurs later. She sleeps with her husband a little bit later, and then she falls pregnant. And we're not told exactly what the time gap is between the encounter with Eli and her falling pregnant. The key thing is she's cast her cares upon the Lord, and she knows enough about the Lord to know that he listens and cares. And whatever his response is, it will be the appropriate one. Wonderfully, it results in the birth of Samuel. But I wonder what would have happened if Samuel had not been born. Still would not have affected her face that day after she'd had the encounter with Eli. And perhaps there's a deeper question, you know, is this an example, therefore, of what to do if you can't have children? You know, sometimes we go to the Old Testament and we look straight for examples, and there are certainly uh, parts of the Old Testament that we can use as an example. You know, I preached on uh, David and Bathsheba, and I think there's a lot there that points us towards the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's also an element there that, you know, if you're a young guy and you're being a bit of a peeping Tom relative to your neighbor's wife, you're going to get into a lot of trouble and you shouldn't do it. There are some sort of practical lessons to be learned from the Old Testament. Is the practical lesson here, well, if you can't have children, pray to God, and because God is the God He is, He will give you children. If God had not given Hannah Samuel, could we still be said... Could he still be said to have lovingly answered her prayer? Well, we might say no. He wouldn't have answered her prayer, would he? Because he didn't deal with her immediate problem. Her problem, as far as she sees it, is she can't have children. And if the Lord had not opened her womb, there's a sense in which we would, I think, be right to say, no, the Lord has not answered her prayer. But then again, I think Scripture would compel us to say, yes, even if he had not answered her prayer in the way that she had asked for it, God would still be the same God. He would still be the same God of the covenant promises of Deuteronomy. And in the long term, he would still have answered her prayer because actually her real problem is not that she lacks a child. She thinks that's her problem. She thinks the agony in her life is related to the fact that she doesn't have a child. And there's a sense in which that is immediately true. The immediate presenting cause of her agony is she doesn't have children. But the ultimate cause of her agonies derives from the fact that she's living in a world that is in rebellion against God. Her personal difficulty 
is a symptom of a much, much larger issue. The birth of Samuel, in actual fact, is significant, not really because it solves her problem, I think. That's great and it's lovely. It's wonderful that this woman had a child, the child that she desired. But ultimately, Samuel is born for the nation. It's the nation's problem that's really being dealt with here. The answer to her problem, we might say, is almost a collateral benefit. The real problem is the house of Eli. The house of Eli needs to be replaced and then somebody needs to bring the kingdom into play. Somebody needs to raise up a king. And when that first king goes wrong, somebody needs to tear the kingdom away from that king and put into place David. Her problem, Hannah's problem, is that she lives in a nation in apostasy against God. And that's the problem that's being solved when her prayer is answered here, of which her personal difficulty is a collateral matter. And of course, the birth of Samuel points us towards the great king, Jesus Christ. Because the real ultimate answer to Hannah's prayer, the agony of her soul, the alienation she feels from the world around her, the persecution she's experiencing, the real answer is not even King David. The real answer is the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are many similarities in ways between the account of the arrival of Samuel and the account of the arrival of Christ, particularly relative to John the Baptist. As Samuel will be the man who points to David, so John the Baptist is the man who points to Christ. And as Samuel is born to a barren woman, so John the Baptist will be born to a woman beyond the age of child-rearing. So, if you're a woman here today and tragically the Lord has closed your womb and you don't have children, then pray, pray that he would open your womb. But if he doesn't, don't think that he hasn't answered your problem. He already has done in the Lord Jesus Christ because your problem is not that you don't have children. The problem is that you're part of a world that's in rebellion against God. And the Lord has dealt with that definitively in the Lord Jesus Christ. That brings us then to Hannah's response. What is her response? Worship, verse 19. I wasn't there, obviously, on that day when they got together and worshipped before the Lord. But I'm guessing family worship that day had a significantly different quality to that which it had the day before. This woman had cast her cares upon the Lord. And she was transformed by that. She goes on, of course, then to give Samuel to the Lord's service. Ultimately, it's very touching, isn't it? She didn't want Samuel for selfish reasons. She actually gives him back to the Lord. She has that underlying faith and trust that God will care for him and that God will use him greatly in purposes that lie beyond her own desires at this point. She has a wonderful grasp. I keep thinking of that passage, I think it's in Samuel 3, when we hear about them visiting each year. And each year she makes him a little suit of clothes. And each year you can imagine the speculation, how much has he grown? How big do I have to make the suit of clothes this year? There are so many touching aspects of the story of Hannah and Samuel. But ultimately it's not about Hannah. It's really about Samuel and the national problem and pointing towards the Lord Jesus Christ. So then... Just three very simple applications to draw from this. First of all, 
If you're praying today and God appears to be silent, do not think that that is God's indifference towards you. Because God has already answered your biggest problem already. Hebrews 1, God has spoken definitively in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're praying today for the Lord to alleviate suffering or some difficulty in your life and he does not appear to be answering your prayer, it is not because he is silent. It is not because he's indifferent. He has already answered your prayer in the most profound sense in and through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ because it is in and through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ that the kingdom of evil is decisively defeated and the kingdom of God is established. Secondly, Again, application, this sort of goes back to some of the things I said over the weekend. Notice, notice the small and weak beginning of what will become the most glorious period in Israel's history here. Samuel is critical to getting David to the throne. The house of Eli needs to be overthrown and Samuel will be instrumental in that. Samuel will bring the house of David to the throne. David, of course, is the father of Solomon. Solomon leads Israel to a period of economic and political prosperity that it had never seen before and would never ever see again in the future. But what a small and weak beginning. A sterile woman crying out to God for help in the temple at Shiloh and then falling pregnant. Who would have thought that that tiny thing would lead to such magnificent results in Israel. And it's the same today with the kingdom of God. The church is the beginning of the kingdom of God, the breaking in of the kingdom of God into this age of darkness. And it's small and hidden. Cheyenne is a small town. 55,000 people, I think you told me. But maybe there are 100 people here. Even in a small town, we're only a tiny, tiny hidden piece, aren't we? Do not let outward appearances deceive you about what is going on. The pregnancy of Hannah was a mighty thing. The smallness of the church will yet be a mighty thing in the purposes of God. And thirdly, what should our response be? Worship. Worship. You should leave church each Sunday transformed because you should have laid all your cares upon the Lord there, have met with the Lord and leave transformed. Let us pray. Oh Lord God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of your kingdom, though hidden in weakness. We praise you for the story of Hannah and Samuel. We thank you, Lord, that you answered her personal agonies. But we thank you more that you answered the agonies of the nation. and did that supremely, of course, in your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray, oh God, this day, that as we leave this place, we might lay our cares upon you and go forth transformed and rejoicing. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.